Welcome to the 40 Under 40 podcast with your hosts, Caitlin Cromit and AJ McQuarrie. They are two entrepreneurs who speak to other entrepreneurs under the age of 40, so you can learn from their successes and failures along their journeys of building businesses. 40 Under 40 podcast hopes to educate, motivate, and inspire people to pursue their dreams of starting a business, regardless of age. And now, here are your hosts, Caitlin and AJ. All right, welcome back to the 40 Under 40 podcast, Caitlin. How are you? You know, I'm doing great, AJ. How about you? I'm great. You know, it's been so inspiring for me to watch people start businesses. I feel like COVID has inspired people to make moves. Yes. And I mean, that's kind of who we're talking to today, right? Yeah, it's it's actually so true. I think COVID has given us some inner self examination and had some people who've said, you know, hey, why am I not acting on these ideas I've had for a while? And so our guest today actually did that and she's doing it and she's a brand new entrepreneur, but already killing it. Yeah, we've had a lot of seasoned entrepreneurs so far. So it's really nice that we have someone who just started a few months ago. Yeah, she's at the beginning of her journey. And I think we can all learn a lot from her and what she's already been able to accomplish. So our next guest, Tanya Bhattacharya, was raised for 12 years in the nonprofit behavioral healthcare field as a fundraiser, a marketer, and eventually an executive director. That's awesome. After graduating from the University of California, Irvine, UC Irvine, with a degree in psychology and social behavior. And now she started an organization called Lumos Marketing in the noise and chaos of 2020's triple public health crisis. And yes, we're going to find out what she means by that. But she's really all about lighting up women's voices, opening doorways of opportunity and influence. So she's really helping women be the thought leaders that they are meant to be and that they know they can be and conquering imposter syndrome, among other things. So we're really excited to have her. I met her during an online Zoom workshop a couple months ago, very randomly. We immediately connected in a breakout room and so excited to have her here. Welcome, Tanya. Tanya, welcome. Thank you. It's so fun being here. Well, we're really excited to have you on. Um, Can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, about your business and what you do? Yeah, 100%. So, you know, I really started my um, professional life in the nonprofit space. Um, I've been in the nonprofit space for 12 years, actually longer than that, if you count my work in college. Um, and so I just fell in love with the roller coaster of nonprofit life, right? It's, it's a roller coaster of making shift happen, like I like to say. And, you know, you're creating change in communities, you're fighting for social justice, you're working closely at the heart of the world's biggest problems coming up with visionary solutions. And I had a lot of people that I work with in this space, we like to say, you know, it doesn't really feel like work. It just feels like it's a deeper personal calling. But then that being said, last year, stuff really hit the fan. I think that's a little bit of an understatement, you know, 2020. (laughs) And we were in a triple public health crisis, obviously coronavirus, um, that's a no brainer, but then also racism, racial violence, and then the increase in mental health crises that I was definitely seeing as somebody who worked in the mental health and addiction space. And, you know, our field, the nonprofit field, the change makers, we were in the thick of it because we were tasked with having to um, do more with less while try to keep it together ourselves in our personal lives. And so I just knew a lot of people, women especially, who are making a big difference, like in the social ills that, that are 
plaguing our world, but they just weren't at the table, right? And I think that's just it. The people who are closest at the heart of the world's biggest problems have the solutions. They have the lived experience. They know how to solve these issues because they're in the trenches, but they're just not at the table. And so I knew there had to be a different way, right? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your business, Lumos Marketing? How did you go from nonprofit sector to being an entrepreneur? That's a great question. So, you know, I started Lumos Marketing. It's a thought leadership branding consultancy for purpose-driven women. And, you know, people follow the leaders that they know, like, and trust. They will roll up their sleeves and jump into the arena to help these leaders make shift happen. Right. And from the nonprofit world, I saw this happen. Like I saw audiences come and donate, share their time, talent and treasure, um, connect us with the resources, the organizations, the influencers that could further our cause. But I saw a lot of women, um, especially struggling with imposter syndrome, with self-limiting beliefs that stopped them from being seen as the trusted expert that they truly are. And they stay the best kept secret. And so the problem with that is you're leaving transformational opportunities at the table because you're not at the table to get those opportunities. And so my shift from nonprofit life into entrepreneurship was just based on seeing a problem in the world and feeling strongly enough about solving that problem that I just had to get off of my rear end and leave my somewhat cozy. I wouldn't call it cushy. I would never call a nonprofit job cushy, but it was cozy. (laughs) It was cozy. I'd been there for 12 years. I'd never done anything else. And so I probably could have retired there. Yeah. So this was your first time being an entrepreneur. Yes. Yes. This is my first time being an entrepreneur, 100%. Exciting. How does it feel? It feels good, actually. It feels good. I think I know how you're going to answer this, but do you think entrepreneurs are born entrepreneurs or is entrepreneurship something you can grow into? So I think that entrepreneurs can 100% be grown, like 100% entrepreneurs can be grown. And I feel really strongly about that because I was grown, not born. You know, one of my clients started a nonprofit herself. And I think when you start a nonprofit, that's kind of like entrepreneurship too. She calls hers, um, or hers is called the Bloom Foundation. And she was inspired by the quote, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. And so I think entrepreneurs can- I like that. I love that. Like it gives me chills every time I hear it. And so I think entrepreneurs can bloom in their own way, right? Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. As long as there's a problem in the world that is- that we're passionate about solving, we can grow into entrepreneurship because solving that problem and helping the people that we stand for becomes more important than the uncomfortability and fear surrounding mm-hmm. that leap. Yeah, totally. Well, so you were saying earlier on about your business and how people look up to different leaders. Were there any sort of leaders that you looked up to, especially as you were starting your, your business in this entrepreneurial journey? Was there anyone that kind of inspired you to take that leap? You know, I've had a lot of really strong mentors in my life and I have a really strong squad. And so I would say one of my mentors, she's like kind of my second mom, third mom, if you will. And so she was just a strong, strong woman. Um, And I always looked to her for advice. And I would say that she was so amazing because she stretched herself to stretch other people. Oftentimes it's really easy to do everything yourself because you know it'll get done with excellence. But the really hard part is letting go of something and letting someone else grow and fail and grow and fail and learn from those mistakes. And so, um, yeah, you know, 
I have a lot of mentors and not so much entrepreneur mentors, which is interesting, but I have a really, really strong squad, like a personal board of directors that I call on that's for support awesome. every day. Yeah. That's really cool. I feel like that's, that's so critical. Yeah. Especially in this like sometimes lonely entrepreneurial journey. <laughs> that, that mentor I told you about, she used to always say the eagle flies alone, you know, and I don't think it has to be that way. I think we can build a group around us that we can call on for support. Totally. Totally. Can you talk a little bit about your business and your business model and how you make money, basically? Yeah, so it's very new, um, yet it's something I've always done. So I left my role as, I left my full-time role as the executive director of a nonprofit on December 31st, 2020. Wow. Oh my yeah, gosh, so I didn't realize this was so recent. <laughs> you know, awesome. it's, it's very new. We're rounding out the second month, but at the same time, I feel like this is something I've always done because um, I've always been all about storytelling, right? I think storytelling is where the magic happens. And so pretty much like what I do, so for established leaders, I ghostwrite LinkedIn content, speeches, any kind of content so that these leaders can stay top of mind for their target audience. Because sometimes there just isn't time to do it all. So we write so that our clients can lead. And then the other piece of what we do is um, for, and this is for emerging leaders. So we offer an eight week thought leadership immersion workshop so that they can establish their platform. They can grow the right audience. And most, the thing I'm most excited about is we help women smash through any self-limiting beliefs that keeps them playing small. So in this two months, I've worked with 10 incredible beta clients. I call them my beta bays because they are like right here in my heart. And the conversation. I love that we beta base. <laughs> I want to get them all like shirts that say beta bay or something. You honestly should copyright that. I think I will. I think I will. But honestly, the conversations we have are just like wow. Because if it's shown me that if your mindset isn't right, it's going to be almost impossible to be perceived as a thought leader. Because we have a lot of stories that are holding us back from childhood. Like, you know, I don't know if you've ever felt like you have to be seen and not heard. Um, I work with a lot of women of color and children of immigrants. And growing up, there wasn't always, always a lot of verbal praise. Like in my situation, pretty much none. Maybe there was a bowl of fruit cut, like a cut of a bowl of cut fruit on the kitchen island, which was like the representation of I love you, I'm proud of you. But there was nothing verbal. Like there was nothing around like, I'm proud of you, you're doing a great job. And sometimes as an adult, that translates to like really needing praise on our content. And if we have zero likes on our LinkedIn post or after a few minutes of posting it, we just delete it really quick. There's a fear of not being enough. And that's so I must have that yesterday. <laughs> so you get it, you get it, it's scary. Being it's seen. So you say we, when you're talking about your business, it, do you have a team? Is it just you? Is it the, the general we? It's the royal we. It's the a royal, royal we. It's, it's, we it's me and my dog, pretty much, who who's not you here. You know what? Anymore. That is a great team. <laughs> <laughs> you work uh, with contractors or other graphic artists and designers if you're helping them build a brand. Like, do you have in that type of team? You know what I really love to do is teach people how to do it all. And sometimes that's not possible and you have to hire other people. But, you know, this day and age in 2021, we have so many tools available to us between Canva, between, you know, different apps on our phone that allow us to make really great videos. 
we don't have to have like a whole production team behind us anymore. Totally. And sometimes, sometimes like that's overkill. So people just want authentic content and we can do Yeah, it can hurt you actually if the production yeah. value is too high. And you target women specifically. One of my favorite marketing saying is those riches and the niches. Mm -hmm. Do you find that like, do you ever be like, oh, should I help everyone? Or do you find targeting women being that specific is better for your business? That's such a good question, AJ. That's such a good question. And you know what? I feel like I actually need to niche down even more. I think a big problem that entrepreneurs have, I think niching down is scary. And I think that's rooted in scarcity mentality. Even though we may think, you know, our, our product is so amazing. We just want to help everyone. What you're doing is actually creating a situation where your message is so broad when you're trying to reach everyone that nobody actually hears it. So it's actually much kinder to be very, very specific. And so I'm working to be even more niche down, but that is totally. a scary thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find yourself, I'm curious. So you, you talked a little bit about the imposter syndrome and do yeah. you find that you ever experienced that? And also, can you talk about what that is for people who might not have heard of that? Yes, a hundred percent. So this is something that I'm really going to school in for lack of a better word. Um, it's something I'm really learning, looking at both in my own journey and with other people. So just to define it really quick, um, I would say imposter syndrome, plain and simple, is fear. It's false evidence appearing real, right? F-E-A-R. But it's not a fear of failure per se. It's more a fear of being discovered or found out that at any point the shoe is going to drop and someone is going to figure out like, oops, how, who, how did they, they let this person in? Like without, we don't belong here, right? It's feeling out of your element, but you're already so deeply entrenched in the situation that you just got to keep it moving as a fraud that you are. And it's especially interesting because in the studies, um, high achievers tend to have imposter syndrome. There's usually a mountain of evidence and accolades that exist that prove your success, yet we can't take it for what it is. And so you know, teaching strategy, teaching thought leadership branding strategy is one thing. You can pick up a book and learn enough strategy to be on your way. But what I think holds a lot of women back and people back is this imposter syndrome that tells them that you're actually not meant to be a leader. It's what makes you say, oh, I couldn't possibly put myself out there because what would people say? What would people think? But when you're purpose-driven and you're doing something to create a shift in the world and create a change in the world and create healing, it's not fair to the people that we stand for to stay hidden, to stay quiet, to stay silent, because we leave transformational opportunities on the table, like I said, when we're not visible to the people who can help us fulfill our mission. I like saying that you're not. it's not fair because it's almost like making it it's not about you and your things that are holding you back. It's about other people and you are doing everyone a disservice by not doing what you're capable of and doing these things and getting out there. I really like how you frame that. And I like how you talked about how we attach to stories. I agree with that hundred percent. We attach to these stories and these incidents that happen to us. Can you talk more about attaching to stories and how do you detach from those stories? You personally. I mean, you know what, that's a journey. That's a journey and it doesn't happen overnight, but, and I'm currently in the process of unpacking this, right? And we know women are more likely to have imposter syndrome feelings and women of color are even more likely to have those feelings. And, you know, the short answer is that we tend to have these feelings 
in these stories when we don't see a lot of examples of people who look like us in the leadership roles. So some of the really tactical things I do is like, you know how Leslie Nope has a wall of women that inspire her? Yes, love her. <laughs> like, yeah, I, me too. Me too. I love her. So that's something you can do. You know, you can create a high five file of accolades that you've achieved over your lifetime and really just look at them. You can create a relationship with your inner saboteur, name them, right? And have conversations with them, take them out to lunch. Like, because your saboteur is a wounded version of yourself. Um, and so making friends with that inner voice, that itty bitty shitty committee can go really far as well. Love I remember that. I was like reading recently this strategy of like talking to yourself as if you are someone else, like about to do something scary or big and being like, instead of making it like, you know, hey self, what's up? I would be like, how would I talk AJ through this situation? Like what advice would I give him or what would I tell him instead of making it about me where it'd be like, you know what? No, you can't do this. Like you're not worthy. We're so good at giving other people advice, right? But not like taking it ourselves, right? So I think that this strikes on something really important because I think this is kind of like the magic sauce. And in a lot of ways, entrepreneurship is shadow work and you got to do the work. And I don't mean like the actual, like it, you know, nine to five, whatever that looks like. I don't mean that kind of work. I mean, the mindset work that nobody wants to do and the overcoming of these stories that we have and the building the relationship with the shadow side of ourselves, you know, because the shadow is all the parts of yourself that you don't necessarily like, that you hide away, that you pretend doesn't exist. And in these two short months, I've learned that it comes out real fast when you're an entrepreneur, because you have to hold a big container for clients and the audience that you're growing online. And it can wreak havoc, right? It can show up as people pleasing. It can show up as making decisions out of fear, like deeply discounting your services when it's actually really harmful to do that because your client is not gonna be invested, right? That's just one example that's come up already. That's so true. Yeah. I also find when you're in the zone of trading services with people, that's also a way of like sabotaging yourself you're devaluing yourself and it's not good. You have to be really careful. You have to be really careful with that. And um, so one of the things that I've done to sort of overcome that is in terms of doing the personal work, you can try to do, your, do it yourself. But I think that having a coach that guides you along the journey is really important. So I have this, this woman named Rosemary. Uh, we work through this program called Pivot. And she asked me the other day, like we were talking about survival patterns. And so growing up, you know, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but my parents had really high expectations academically, like an A was good, A minus, not so much. And so Rosemary asked me like, what would happen if I didn't meet the great expectations? And I couldn't answer that question because that had never really happened. Um, and she said, okay, so you don't have any muscle memory of failing. You don't know what that feels like. You have no point of reference for what that's like. And so I have a tendency or a survival pattern to over-prepare. It's even why I wanted you to give me a list of questions. And you're like, don't worry about it. I was like, but I need a list of questions. Yeah, oh, so interesting. <laughs> but that is not serving me, right? Because um, you just have to go with the flow at a certain point. You have to let things happen, especially when you're in the messy world of entrepreneurship, because otherwise you can't get uncomfortable. That kind of leads me to our next thought, which we really like to ask entrepreneurs, because obviously when you're starting a business, there is going to be a lot of that failure, rejection, just kind of like the nose that you get all the time when you're doing your own thing and, you know, you're building your own business from scratch. So going off of that, like how, 
and maybe Rosemary has helped you with this, but how, how do you, what advice do you give to people who are facing failure or rejection and, and how have you been able to deal with it yourself, even though I know you're learning? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I think oftentimes we think we only have one shot at something. I don't know where that thought comes from. We have to explore it for ourselves, but we think, okay, if we don't get it right the first time, like we're done, like we just got to go back to the, to square one and we're just done. But I think that, you know, practice makes permanent. I think we have to practice failing as funny as that sounds and celebrate the fail. Like I even have this vision of one year into my business. I want to have a report, like an annual report of the first year, but only celebrate the fails. And I want to call it like the dumpster fire report or something like that. My logo is actually a fire. So it actually kind of works, but (laughs) if we're not failing, we're not really doing, we're not really uncomfortable. We're not really growing. And the other thing too, is really going back to that personal board of directors. So like there was a time where I, okay, so I want to tell you about a fail that I had in my last job. So I ruffled some feathers. I posted some support for a controversial women's reproductive justice organization. You can probably guess who they are. Um, So I posted about them and a donor announced on my LinkedIn that she would no longer be donating to the organization because of my post. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, you know, I went into panic mode. I was like, oh, Oh no, like I screwed up. And I was also frustrated at a deeper level because what I stood for was being challenged, right? So I was not in a place to respond. And so without even really realizing what I was doing, I started reaching out to the people on my personal board of directors. I didn't call it that at the time because I didn't know I had one, but I called somebody who was very spiritually grounded and she talked me through my ego response. I talked to a, a, a pretty politically conservative person and she offered a different point of view. I called my mentor that I talked about earlier, who's a baby boomer, and she gave me her feedback from somebody from that perspective. And so it just gave me a really well-rounded cushion and landing place for me to then take my next step. So I think you got to get uncomfortable. You got to learn to fail, but you have to have a support system to like help brush you off and help like, you know, put the bandaid on the boo-boo and tell you that you're going to be okay. So you can do it again the next day. How have you found that support system for some people, you know, especially now it's hard to connect with people and meet people that align with you or your values or, or challenge you. How have you found those people for you, for your personal? And was it a formal, was it like a, do they know they're on your personal board of directors or is it just your little thing? Yeah. So you can do it both ways, I think. And you can make it really formal. You could even have a, you know, board meeting every month or every quarter with these people. Cause I think that from a networking perspective, they all probably want to get to know each other. I haven't gone that far and done that, but you could if you wanted to. And so I think you asked a really great question too. Like, how do you find the people that match your, your vision and your mission and your values? And I think to find those people, you first have to know your mission and vision and values. And so many people operate without really having done that deeper work of thinking about what do they stand for? What is their deeper why? And, you know, Simon Sinek made it really popular to talk about the why and the deeper meaning. And I, and I, you know, that was game changing when I read that. But I think we also need to talk about the who. So the why is the vision. It's a deeper meaning. The how is the mission. It's like, how do we get from here to there? But the who is like, who do we need to become to make this vision a reality? And I think that's so poignant for entrepreneurship as well, because it's good to have a goal, right? Like I might have a goal to help, I don't know, like a hundred women this year or something like that, but I can't focus on that because 
I got to focus on the systems that are going to make that happen. And I learned that from this book called Atomic Habits, which I think should be required reading. Great right? book. He, yep. Great book. So he, and James Clear, the author, he talks about people who are successful at becoming a runner. Like they don't focus on crossing the finish line of, of a marathon. They focus on being a runner. Somebody who wants to write a book doesn't focus on like, you know, the book release party. They, they focus on creating space in their schedule to write every single day. So again, we fall back into the systems that we have in place. And so I think we need to focus on who do we want to become and then look for people who already have that right? And make friends with them and tell them like, Hey, I want what you have Help me get there. And that's a gift to that yeah. person. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Who do you want to become and who's going to be on your team to help you get there? Was there a specific moment when you knew like you're working at this nonprofit, you know, you're doing great things. Was, what was the moment where you were like, I need to do this other thing. Like I need to start my own business. Or was there a moment? A lot of people ask me that. And I don't know that there was a very specific moment. I think sometimes things happen slowly and then all of a sudden. But, you know, like I said, I'm all about storytelling. And I think stories have so much power, right? And psychologically, when we hear a good story, we're no longer like reading words on a page or listening to like audio, you know, sound waves in the air. We are right there in the story with the person. And I think stories break the illusion that that they break the illusion that we are all separate when in actuality, we are all one. And so when I worked at the nonprofit, I worked, so the nonprofit I worked for is called, it was called, New, it is called New Directions for Women. And it was an addiction treatment center for women and their families. And so a lot of what I did is sit with our alumni and um, help them write their stories. And it wasn't about like their drunk log or their using stories. It was about their recovery and the transformation that happened. And so Brene Brown, our fairy godmother, Brene Brown, has this quote that I love. And it's, one day you will tell the story of um, what you overcame, what you went through, and it will become someone else's survival guide. Whoa, just got the chills. I really like that. I know. And so that's what these women, these alumni of our program were doing. They were inspiring others with their story. And I knew, like I said earlier, I knew a lot of people who had a story. And I know, I think entrepreneurs, big visionary people. We all have a story. And I think we're most well-equipped to serve the person that we once were because we have the roadmap, right? We have the solutions. We know how to get here, but we're not the hero of the story. I think that's where a lot of people get it wrong. And I think that's one of the reasons I was like, I need to start this business and like show people how storytelling is done because people were putting themselves as the hero of the story, right? But we are not, we're the guide. We're the Dumbledore, you know, we're Yoda, we are like the wise sage that went through the experience and now we have the roadmap. And so, yeah, I think when we humbly share our lived experience and we're just being of service, there's a very different response from the audience. And so um, I really wanted to help people do that because there's a lot of stories that need to be told. I think storytelling, if, if, if there's one skill that's going to make you successful, it's not accounting or like raising money. Well, raising money is related, but it's not something you learn necessarily in business school is storytelling. That's the thing. That's it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your college experience and how much college has prepared you, if it has at all, for entrepreneurship? Yeah. So I went to the University of California at Irvine. I'm a proud anteater, zot, zot, zot. And yeah, college is definitely important, but it was less about the coursework and more about the connections that I made there. 
So um, I was in a sorority, I'm a Gamma Phi Beta. And so my first job in nonprofit world was through a sorority sister that I had. So she got me this job and it was pretty cool. It was fundraising. It was for the UCI Law School Initiative before it became the law school. I would call up alumni and just like get to know them and see what they were up to and build relationships with them. And that was fun. And then that essentially got me the experience that I needed to get the job at the nonprofit that I was at for 12 years. But that being said, I was a psychology major. And so there were a couple of concepts that I learned in psychology, even though I didn't become a psychologist or a therapist that are important, you know, that I still remember today. There's one thing especially that comes to mind. I think I learned this in Psych 101. So it's kind of basic, but it's called the spotlight effect. And so when I learned about this, it was a huge relief. Okay, so the spotlight effect is pretty much saying um, people greatly overestimate the extent that people judge them. So there's a study that mm -hmm. I learned about, right, where students were asked to wear like this bright yellow Barry Manilow t-shirt to an event with some other students. I guess I was supposed to be uncool or like weird. I, don't, I think that'd be pretty cool. I noticed it in a good way, but um, yeah, later I, on, I like that. <laughs> So later on, they were um, asked to estimate how many people noticed them in this flashy t-shirt. And they guessed like over double than the people than the number who had actually noticed them at all. So I think this comes up in this work because we're afraid of looking awkward or some of my clients are like, oh, you know, I'm afraid of being visible because people are going to think I'm weird. People are going to think I'm awkward. And that stops them from, from putting themselves out there. But the reality is the people we're addressing are probably too worried about how they are coming off and how they look to even notice any real. So true. Exactly. Yeah. People are way more focused on themselves than you. Yeah. And I think it's really important to remember. It, sound, it sounds mean at first, like nobody even notices you, but it's also encouraging. Like nobody's watching you this much. So just go out and do it. Do your thing, yeah. Totally, totally, 100%. So I'm just curious, now that you're a for-profit business, is there any weird feelings like from going from this nonprofit person to the for-profit world? Do you feel any guilt or is there anything that you're kind of attaching to from the nonprofit world? You know, I think there's a misconception that nonprofits are not about, or nonprofits don't need money or nonprofits are- Oh, oh my gosh, don't even get me started. <laughs> well, you're in the non, you have a nonprofit as well, right? Or worked for a nonprofit for a long time, like a hospital, um, a hospice yeah, organization. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's such a thing I'm passionate about. People just are like, nonprofits shouldn't have any money, you know? Isn't anyway, go on. <laughs> an overhead myth and everything where people don't want to give money to overhead. It's like, how do you think nonprofits exist? Do you think ghosts are running these organizations? And that like nobody wants to pay people's salaries. And it's like, okay, cool. No one's going to run the organization then. <laughs> exactly. And I think that COVID-19 has exposed that myth, that overhead myth, because the organizations that didn't have that um, didn't have like any general operational funds coming in or didn't really have strong systems in place probably struggled a lot more than the ones that had strong technology in place so they could go virtual and a strong CEO and a COO and these staff that people don't want to fund, but when rubber hits the road, they, there needs to be the system in place, organizational structure in place. So, you know, I think that's a big myth that nonprofits don't need money or shouldn't make money. You know, they're a business just like any other business. The difference is- 
Yes. So I'm curious on more the personal side of things. So I know some people listening might be, you know, wanting to be entrepreneurs or they're on that journey of being an entrepreneur. Do you feel like you've had to make or will have to make any like personal sacrifices when it comes to starting and running your own business versus being in that not cushy, but cozy job that you were in before? I think nothing good in life comes without sacrifice, right? So, you know, going back to that example we talked about earlier with from atomic habits and systems and goals and stuff like that, like he, in that book, he also talks about like, what do you have to give up to take on this new identity, to take on this new who, to take on, and in my case, you know, with the women that I'm working with as clients, like I'm helping them take on the identity of the trusted voice in their space. So if we think about sacrifice and the examples we brought up, like we talked about a runner, what does a runner have to give up to become a runner? Cozy mornings in bed, like knees that don't crunch when you go up the stairs, you know? Um, what does an author have to give up? They have to give up probably like, you know, brunching time. They have to give up time that they could be doing anything else. And so similarly, we all need to say goodbye to something to become the person that we want to be. Because otherwise we would already be it. So you've got to name it, you've got to mourn it, and then get ready for this new zone of excellence that you're about to step into. You're so wise. I feel like you keep having these great sound bites that I'm like, you could literally make a plaque out of this. These are tweetable <laughs> moments, people. So good. There was one more thing I wanted to say there, which is my thing that I'm giving up uh, or sacrificing, right? And so it's a constant and steady income, right? So a lot of people, entrepreneurs, have money mindset issues and fear around not having enough, even when it's not warranted. I always had what I needed, but it's just more stories from childhood, you know, those pesky stories that we need to reframe. But everything we want is on the other side of fear, right? So just got to go for it. Love that. You mentioned Atomic Habits a few times. I read the book. I highly recommend it to our audience. One of the things he talks about is making a habit, a bad habit, harder to achieve. You know, taking the batteries out of the TV remote was his example. Are there, is there anything like that that you do that you, you know, you have these habits that you wanted to change just in general, how did you change any of your habits? The tendency I most wanted to change is I am, I have a hard time waking up in the morning, like left to my own devices. I'd probably sleep till noon. Oh Maybe my later. gosh, same. Yes. I'm so bad at it. <laughs> yes. yes. And then you wake up and the day's like pretty much over and you just kind of start to, you know, wallow and, and go down this thing. So put your phones like on the other side of the room. So when the alarm goes off, you have to get out of bed. And yes, like, you know, I've done this and then gotten back into bed, but just the yeah. more practice you have. <laughs> For me, that's the one thing. For me, that's the one thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So going off of that, what is, once you're up, <laughs> once you're out of bed, what is like a typical day for you these days? And I know you're still new to this entrepreneurial world, but do you have a routine? Do you feel like every day is different? What does it look like for you? Well, you know, I just, as you asked that, I pulled up my Outlook calendar so I can look at it a little bit because every day is a little <laughs> different, but there's, there's some routine like, um, put it baked into there as well. So the first thing I do every day professionally is actually post on LinkedIn. So I try to not try to post. I do post every single day. You are so good about that. I love your <laughs> posts, by the way, everyone go follow her on LinkedIn. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. That makes me feel good. People ask me about that because people sometimes are like, man, how do you come up with that content? And the reality is, you know, how many thoughts do you have in one day? You probably have thousands of thoughts in one day. So you just have to take one of them and turn it into something that can either help someone or be entertaining or ideally both. 
but um, you just gotta grab it. It's kind of like, um, I just had this vision in my mind of SpongeBob going jellyfishing. Like there's so many thoughts going around. You just gotta capture one and turn it into something. So it's, it's accessible for everyone. I just added um, you on LinkedIn. So I hope you accept. <laughs> She's not gonna accept you now. Uh -oh, do you do a lot of, do you do a lot of LinkedIn do you get a lot of your business on LinkedIn? It seems like that would be a good place for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm still so new. I have, I've just started getting business. I've started getting a trickle of them. And so out, uh, actually, yes, all of them have at least engaged. If not, if, if I didn't find them on LinkedIn, they've at least engaged with the stuff on LinkedIn, on my LinkedIn. So I think the value of content creation and being out there on social media and providing, you know, answers to people's pain points is that it greatly decreases the, like, the time frame of somebody purchasing with you. Um, it might not necessarily bring you a bunch of leads, but the people who were thinking about working with you anyway, kind of self cultivate into being your client. Cause they're like, wow, they get to know you through your content. Totally. But you were in the middle of explaining your day. So oh. go back to that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I do the LinkedIn thing. And then, so um, after I did that today, I had a session with a one-on-one -on -one client. Um, she's amazing. She's a director of operations for a really creative nonprofit organization here in Orange County. And I love working with her and seeing the transformation to where we are now because she's more confident in reaching out for help, for putting out content, sharing her story, and just stepping into her power. Because at the beginning, she's like, I don't want to bother anyone. And I think maybe working in nonprofit, we get into this begging trap. Like, Caitlin, I don't know if you can commiserate with that, but it's like, we feel like we're always begging for resources. Totally. Yeah. I right? hate that part of it. Yeah. Yes. But we got to reframe that because we bring so much value because we're doing the work. We're doing the work of transformation. You're and right. You know about what? It. Yes. I'm done with that. <laughs> Be done with it. Be done with it. We bring just as much value to the funder that's giving us money as as the other way around because we are in the trenches doing the work right so so true so true yeah. yeah you know and then i spend a little bit of time on clubhouse i that's probably a habit i need to figure out i i need to figure out my life because i'm spending way too much time on there are you familiar with this app yes. i just downloaded it and i i was very overwhelmed by it so i just didn't even go any further are you hosting events on there or are you just a listener yeah, well, I, at first I was just a listener because Clubhouse is scary because like we're on this podcast right now, right? And I know it's going to be edited, so I'm fine. And you know, I can post something on Instagram and use all these filters, and I can go on TikTok and have background music. But on Clubhouse, it's just you. Like, there's no editing. It's it's in real time. You're just showing up as yourself, vibing. So it can be nervous, nerve wracking. But I think Clubhouse is great. Just for this one reason, it gives you access to drive change and meet people and possibly raise revenue, but it helps you find your voice because there's no filter. It's just you in real time. So I like it. I have one session every Friday morning on imposter syndrome on Friday mornings at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And then I'm involved with this incredible group called Professional Women of Color. Um, and I just, you know, show up and listen and I'm part of the community. So I think you got to find your place on Clubhouse. You got to find your, your people and then it's great. But, you know, just like anything else, there's a lot of trash on there too. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally, totally. So on this same topic, let's say someone out there is like, I want to be a thought leader. I have a lot of great ideas. 
what how can they get started you know clubhouse maybe might be a good start but what else should, should somebody yes, be doing i think the very first step is finding your niche i think everybody has something that they could become the world's expert on you know i really really truly believe that if you niche down far enough you can become the go-to voice on that so going through a process to really identify what that is like where do your passion your lived experience and the things that make you credible where do they all intersect what's your story like what can you speak at length about with almost no preparation right and that's probably your thing and then you know you got to get the messaging down you got to figure out your elevator pitch you got to figure out how to say um, and communicate what you do in a way that makes people say tell me more about that and then you got to find the channels and that's hard. And I think we oftentimes try to do too much and we're just trying to be in every channel, you know, but I think you got to go all in, in one space. And if you're trying to figure out which one to be in, it always goes back to your target audience. So who is the audience that you're trying to reach, you know, for fundraisers that might be donors for um, people who do direct service work that might be the people that you serve for people who work at universities that might be your alumni, where do they hang out? Are they on LinkedIn? Are they on Twitter? Are they maybe not even on social media and you have to do something else like a, I don't know, like I think a sign at a protest is a type of content marketing, right? Content marketing and, and channels are broader than we think. It's not just social. It's getting out into the world and like making shift happen. Flash mob is content marketing. Shoot. Yeah, seriously. No, that's very true. Well, yeah. where can people find you? If they want to reach out. Yeah. So my channel of choice is definitely LinkedIn. That's where I'm at, you know, every day. So find me on LinkedIn under my name. Um, other than that, you can find me on Clubhouse. You know, my name on there is Tanya Bot, T-A-N-I-A-B-H-A-T. Or you can go to my website, which is Lumos Marketing. Dot co and lumos is the spell and it's the illumination spell in harry potter so ah, let there be light you know let my us partner shine. will love that i love that so you're a big harry potter fan oh i'm such a nerd oh my goodness gracious <laughs> i used I to go to barnes and noble at midnight every time the book would come out and just like read it all that night before the sun would come up oh my gosh that's amazing <laughs> well great inspiration for your name <laughs> for your company name <laughs> awesome well thank you so much for coming on yeah, this thank was you you've been really awesome, awesome. This is really great. Any last words? No, this has just been so much fun. You actually, this was my first podcast I was ever interviewed on. So this is a first for me. Awesome. Yeah. And I, and I couldn't have thought of a better podcast to be on or two better hosts to be with. So thank you oh so my gosh, much. Oh, that was fun. so nice. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the 40 Under 40 podcast with Caitlin Cromit and AJ McQuarrie. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort, and we'll catch you in the next episode.